when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Boris Johnson encountered one of the most turbulent weeks of his premiership as a scheme to reform parliamentary standards and save one of his own MPs backfired spectacularly. The seven principles of public life that all governments have espoused for over 25 years require that ministers and MPs should show leadership in upholding ethical standards in public life. I find it hard to see how yesterday's actions in any way meet that test. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the chaos surrounding the botched reform of parliamentary standards, as referenced by Lord Evans, who's the chair of the Standards Committee and Public Life at the top. We'll be looking at why number 10 was so eager to save the disgraced Tory MP Owen Paterson and where this row goes next. Political editor George Parker, political commentator Robert Shrimsley and our political correspondent Laura Hughes will explain all. And later, we'll be looking at the first week of the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, where over 100 world leaders gathered to make headway on climate change. Breakthroughs were made on cash and deforestation, but there was scant progress on coal. Leslie Hook, our environment correspondent and chief political correspondent Jim Picard, will take us behind the scenes. With much discuss, we're going to get straight into the main topic of this week. Owen Paterson was best known in Westminster as a hard Brexit campaigner, a long-standing Tory MP and a former Environment Secretary who once argued that badgers had moved the goalposts. Now, his name will always be a byword for sleaze. Paterson was found to have committed an egregious breach of the lobbying rules by the Standards Commission. Yet instead of accepting a 30-day suspension and potentially a by-election, Downing Street cooked up a plan to scrap the whole process and force Tory MPs to back it. And yet 24 hours later, the scheme spectacularly backfired after a backlash from the public and in Parliament. And by Friday morning, Patterson was no longer an MP. With big questions for Boris Johnson and his chief whip Mark Spencer over their judgment, Patterson's told Sky News he had no qualms over his lobbying efforts, which he argued were to do with milk, and said he would do it all over again. I had absolutely no intention, no hesitation whatever in calling a meeting very rapidly. And you look at the witness statements, they're grateful that I did do that. As a result of those efforts, milk, British milk is now safer. And we did it without disrupting the dairy industry. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely no, no, no question. Well, Laura Hughes, this is quite a complex one. So let's start at the off here. The, the, the Owen Patterson had been under investigation for quite some time by Karen Catherine Stone, who is the Parliamentary Standards um, Commissioner. And she produced this report that came out last week that said that he committed several series of egregious breaches of lobbying and the lobbying rules within Parliament and recommended a 30-day suspension, which in turn could have led to a by-election, but her report was quite contentious. Tell us all about it. 
Yes. So at the heart of all of this is the fact that this former minister was earning over £100,000 by working as a consultant for the diagnostics company Randox and the meat processor Lynn's Country Foods. And this report looked into the fact that he used his parliamentary office to hold meetings with both these companies on 25 separate occasions between 2016 and 2020. And then the Standards Commissioner found that on seven occasions, he had approached the Food Standards Agency on behalf of Lynn Country Foods, and then again on behalf of Randox. And then separate to this, on four occasions, and this is the most serious bit, he was found to have approached ministers in government departments on behalf of Randox. And the reason that this is a breach of the rules is it can be described as paid advocacy. MPs are allowed to work for companies. They're allowed to have other employment as long as it's really, really within this code of conduct that MPs are sort of bound to. And the problem is that, you know, clearly here, Owen Patterson did act as a paid advocate. And that's why he's got into so much trouble, even though, of course, he has strongly rejected any claims because he says that in these meetings he had, for example, he was actually raising concerns over issues like the testing of antibiotics in milk. And that's why he has claimed and some Conservative MPs tried to claim on Thursday that he's acting more as a whistleblower than a a, a paid advocate. Well, Robert Trimsley, that report, as you said, looked to be pretty clear. And the Parliamentary Standards Commission has said that she was not convinced by Patton's testimony. And and the whole thing, of course, is much more complex because during this whole process, Patton's wife committed suicide. And he has said publicly that this whole thing has fed into that as well, which has made this whole thing very emotionally charged. But this is such a rare thing that normally whenever the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner comes up with a report, it's nodded through by MPs and it's accepted. Yet this one was challenged and we heard from a whole bunch of Patterson's allies over the past week, such as the former Brexit Secretary David Davis and Lord Charles Moore, the former editor of the Daily Telegraph, who said that essentially he'd been stitched up and that Catherine Stone hadn't listened to his witnesses and there was another side to this. Do you buy any of that? Uh, no, not really. I don't. I mean, I've, I've I've read the full report, and I mean, Laura set it up really well. But some of the emails that he sent, even if you took the whistleblowing argument, which the commissioner rejects on the grounds that could be used to defend almost any action uh, that an MP takes for a, a company that's paying them, even if you take that argument, some of these emails he talks about Randox's superior technology. He suggests other other areas where Randox's technology could be valuable. With Lynn's food, his part of his work is to try and stop a competitor of Lynn's. So, you know, it's it's pretty clear cut. And a lot of the arguments that are made about witnesses not being called, that's because their evidence was read and they didn't feel the need to examine it further. His arguments about there not being an appeal, the commissioner made a finding that then went to the committee, which upheld that finding. So I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for this. I think there's a lot of faux outrage about the way that the commissioner has behaved and in fairness, I mean, there's history to this. Labour Party was similar when they were in power and they tried to remove a, a commissioner called Elizabeth Filkin. So it's not unusual for a government to get very uppity when it finds its own peoples being called into question. But I don't have, think there's much of a case. What I think is a, com- a combination of two factors. One is a lot of MPs who've been on the wrong side of the commissioner, including Boris Johnson, who saw an opportunity to, to clip her wings or get rid of her. And, you know, a more human sense of sympathy for Owen Patterson, who obviously had 
the most appalling experience. And I think those two factors combined to see if they can't put them together, get rid of an annoying commissioner and get Owen off the hook. So that takes us to the events of Wednesday, George, which was that instead of accepting this report and nodding through Owen Patton's 30-day suspension, Downing Street came up with this new ruse, which was to form a new committee headed by John Whittingdale, who's the former culture minister, who I think was actually sacked in the recent reshuffle, to look at the whole basis of the Parliamentary Science Committee and Commissioner and how it works. And the argument of Downing Street was that there was no way for Owen Patterson to appeal this and that that was unfair. And so they came up with this idea and tried to push it through. But Tory MPs really weren't happy about it. Well, not at all. It was a sort of spatchcock sort of arrangement, sort of cooked up by people in dark rooms without any proper strategic thought about where this might lead. And you mentioned that the amendment that was put down by Andrea Leadsom. There were a number of Owen Patterson's friends who were involved in coming up with this wheeze, including Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House, David Davis, a lot of Brexiteers who felt ideological sympathy with Owen Patterson. Boris Johnson discussed this idea with old mates from the Daily Telegraph at the Garrett Club on Tuesday. So the whole thing was cooked up in slightly strange circumstances. And in the end, it was presented on the Wednesday morning to Conservative MPs. And a lot of them just looked absolutely despairing. Remember, they they were told that they were being obliged to vote for this amendment on the pain of a three-line whip. And that means for the uninitiated that if you're a government member, you have to resign or you'll be sacked if you vote against the order coming down from number 10. A lot of them were in absolute despair. And I bumped into one MP who just said to me, everything that Labour is saying about this is true. We're shooting ourselves in the head here. And people looked really, you could see it on their faces, distraught that they were being asked to vote for this thing because it was so obviously a party stitch up. You mentioned the fact that they were going to set up the sham committee with a Tory majority on it, chaired by John Whittingdale, who happened to be the former boss of Carrie Johnson, the Prime Minister's wife, which would then come up with some appeal system to be run by who knows who. The whole thing just sniffed, just it was whiffy to high heaven. And in the end, 250 MPs, of whom I think, I think it was about 247 of them were Conservatives, voted for this amendment. But it was instructive to note that there are 361 Conservative MPs. So at least 100 MPs either voted against the government or in most cases either abstained or found a good reason to be away from the the stench that was emanating from the division lobbies that day. Well, Chris Bryant, who is the Labour MP and sits on the current Parliamentary Standards Committee, was scathing about the government's plans and summed up the opposition to them. If it's just a committee that is chaired by somebody who has sat alongside Owen Paterson, I think including in Cabinet, namely John Whittingdale, so a Conservative MP, and it has a Conservative majority with a casting vote in addition, and no members from the other parties are there, it has absolutely no credibility. Well, Laura, you have to ask the question, why Downing Street came up with this plan without getting the, the, the acceptance of Labour and the Lib Dems? Because it was obvious as soon as this thing passed, it wouldn't take long before this whole thing would collapse. And I think it was Angela Rayner, the deputy Labour leader, who came out and said, we will play no part in this. And as soon as that happened, the idea that it was going to be part of this was just completely not going to happen. Exactly. I think the reason why other parties were not consulted is this was a very last minute decision and it was clearly based on the Owen Patterson ruling and that's the problem with this whole thing in normal times i'm sure there would be opposition figures 
willing to sit down with Andrea Ledson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and discuss whether or not this whole process needs looking at. I think as journalists, we would sit down and, and consider this argument too. The problem was, it is it was so clearly linked with the case of a Conservative MP that it just looked dodgy. It looked as though they were trying to change the rules at the very last minute in order to protect one of their own. And that just has cut through massively with the public. It's the reason for the U-turn, because whilst this is a really complicated, nitty gritty parliamentary sort of procedural argument, on the face of it, it's a really simple story about common sleaze and the Tories changing the goalposts to look after one of their own and it it stunk and that's why no one wanted to have anything to do with it and as George mentioned I think the Prime Minister had a had a last minute change of heart perhaps sat down with Patterson himself I don't know sat down with his allies and it, it was it was too too last minute it wasn't thought out and therefore they were never going to get the backing of of the opposition parties that they needed. Well, this is what Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House of Commons, who was quite intimately involved in drawing up this scheme, had to say on Thursday morning when it was announced that this new parliamentary committee to look at the appeal system would be scrapped. While there is a very strong feeling on both sides of the House that there is a need for an appeals process, there is equally a strong feeling that this should not be based on a single case or applied retrospectively. I fear last night's debate conflated the individual case with the general concern. Well, Robert, when you hear that, it seems completely mad because, of course, this whole thing was linked to the Owen Patterson case. Why else would you choose this moment to do it now? And it does stretch the bounds of credulity. They're saying that somehow, you know, this the idea of this amendment was not going to be related to the very serious question about Owen Patterson's lobbying conduct. Yeah, it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, I have to hand it to Jacob Rees-Mogg, who delivered this with a straight face. Of course, that's what happened. But you have to, one thing you have to say about the prime minister is, you know, he he's out the back door the moment anyone calls fire in the hall. You know, he um, the one thing you have to say is he saw just how badly this had gone wrong, and he bailed on the whole process immediately. I think the level of dissent from his own MPs was so extraordinary. And, and one of the reasons they cooked up so quickly is because they've become rather addicted to the idea that you don't give your MPs any time to think about something which they might dislike. So you have this saw the same thing with the much more important um, national insurance increase, where they just rammed the vote through as soon as they'd announced the idea so that Tory MPs didn't have time to get together and discuss how they were going to defy it. I don't know how they ever thought they were going to get away with it. I, I assume this, that what they calculated was there'd be a lot of media storm and it would all die down and they could move on and Owen Patterson would be off the hook and the Standards Commissioner would be suitably neutered and, and everything would be great. And I think they simply miscalculated, as they have done on a few occasions, the scale of outrage on their own side, because they've got away with a hell of a lot. If you think about the number of times they've defied convention over the years, all the way back to the prorogation of Parliament, there's several other places where they simply say, you know, it's a Westminster Village story. Everyone everyone will jump up and down in Westminster. No one outside in the country will get upset by this. But the problem with this particular case is everybody could see what they were doing. It was crystal clear. They understood the stitch up that was happening. And so they've had to beat a hasty retreat. And of course, the, 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 the ultimate irony of this is that the man they tried to save, they ended up hanging out to dry. And now he's had to resign from Parliament. When if they'd actually said, and this is the point, if they'd actually said, look, Look at poor Owen. He's had a terrible, terrible year. Anyone would have sympathy for him. This punishment is too fierce. Let's cut the number of days he's suspended. 
tell him to apologize, it would all be over. And that's what would have happened. But instead, they went for this hell for leather strategy and it's completely imploded. Well, it imploded, George, not just that, but in Owen Patterson's political career that later on Thursday, he announced that he was going to step down from Parliament entirely and move away from what he called the cruel world of politics. And I think obviously he probably felt a bit hung out to drive by Boris Johnson. I'm sure there'd been behind the scenes reassurances about what he was going to do to try and protect the, the MP. But obviously, Mr. Patterson decided just to walk away from it now. Well, I don't think he really had much of a choice. And once the uh, rug was pulled out from under his feet and this idea of some appeals process was withdrawn by Jacob Rees-Mogg at 10.30 on Thursday morning, he could see the writing on the wall. And the story went that he was told what Jacob Rees-Mogg had said while he was out doing his shopping at Waitrose. (laughs) And an hour or two later, he announced he was stepping down. The alternative, if he hadn't announced he was stepping down as MP, would, would have been that there would have been a vote in the House of Commons on the report by the Standards Committee which recommended a 30-day suspension for Owen Patterson. I'm sure uh, that would have been passed, given the circumstances now. And that would have opened the way for a recall petition and then a by-election in Owen Patterson's Shropshire North seat, instead of which he's walked away, claiming he's innocent, saying how hard done by he's been, what a cruel world politics is, very well remunerated in his case, cruel world. And he's he's gone off. Now there's going to be a by-election. He held that seat with, I think, a 22,000 majority at the last election. Labour finished second. It's a very, very long shot for the Labour Party to win that seat, I think. But nevertheless, you know, it's an unwelcome by-election for Boris Johnson, that's for sure. But I don't, I don't think that was the main reason that Boris Johnson was sticking by Owen Patterson. I think there was a sort of a band of Brexit brotherhood, for sure, a sort of sense of loyalty to Owen Patterson, who's a friend of the Prime Minister. And maybe something you want to come on to here, Seb, but also, the suggestion is that it wasn't really about Owen Patterson at all. This is more about the fact that Boris Johnson himself fears he could come under investigation by Catherine Stone, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, uh, over the redecoration of his Downing Street flat. And that was the real reason why he wanted to neutralise that whole committee structure and introduce an appeal system, because he felt he might be the one who was the next to, fair, um, to face it. Well, exactly, George. I wanted to ask Laura about this question because there are currently 19 MPs who voted against the overhaul of the standards who've also been reprimanded by Catherine Stone here. So obviously some of this was about Owen Patton, but you do have to wonder if more of it was about potentially other Tory MPs having a bit of an axe to grind and the Prime Minister being potentially concerned about being investigated himself. Yes, and actually... The Prime Minister has been investigated by Catherine Stone on three separate occasions in the last three years. That's more than any other MP in the House of Commons. Uh, Some might say that's a coincidence, but we know from speaking to people that number 10 are concerned. Catherine Stone might decide to look into the declaration of donations for the refurbishment of Boris Johnson's slightly lavish new number 10 residence. And she has been quite critical of Boris Johnson's flagrant disregard for the rules. He's been found guilty on two occasions that she looked into him of declaring donations late, which she said displayed a pattern of behaviour. She did clear him of breaking the rules when it came to declaring who had funded a holiday in the Caribbean, if you remember that story. So the two of them have history. And, you know, yes, there are a lot of Tory MPs who signed the Andrea Leadsom Amendment who have been investigated. But the most notable 
member of parliament to support moves to potentially overhaul this whole system is Boris Johnson. If I can jump in, Seb, the other point I think to make is there's a real pattern of behaviour here, which is of undermining any independent institution which upsets or frustrates the government. When the Supreme Court ruled against prorogation of parliament, the government acted to curb the powers of the Supreme Court on matters of parliament. They're legislating to reduce the power of judicial review. Uh, When the Electoral Commission, the body that oversees the conduct of campaigns, pursued some of the Brexiters over the the, uh, Brexit referendum, they've now got a bill going through parliament (coughs) to change what the Electoral Commission can do, making it subject to a strategic guidance from the government and stopping its ability to initiate prosecutions. When the media does things, they don't look at the BBC, you know, look at the pressure they're putting on the BBC with threats to the licence fee, as well as the pressure they're putting on individuals. So we have an absolute pattern of behaviour here, which is a government that doesn't like checks and balances. And whenever any of these checks and balances are deployed against anything it wishes to do, it takes action to reduce those checks and balances. And that, I think, is, is quite a worrying trend for democracy in general. And finally, George, this leaves a question of, of of the sort of blame game on this. So obviously some people are questioning the Prime Minister's judgment. There's been a lot of fire targeted at Mark Spencer, the Chief Whip, who was obviously the person who had to see this original plan voted through and put it on a three-line whip that really disgruntled. You know, I think all of us on this call have uh, spoken to Tory MPs who have expressed their outrage in very, very um, straightforward terms with the government and their anger over this situation here. There's obviously, I don't think there's much suggestion that Mark Spencer will resign because I'm sure he's got the Prime Minister's backing within this. But it feels as if, as well as this question about, you know, sleaze and where the, and where the Standards Commission goes next, the outcome of all this is that there's been a real damage done to the relationship between Downing Street and the Conservative Party, that all the MPs were marched up the hill, made to vote for something they didn't believe in, and then were marched down again 24 hours later, having taken a severe knock to their reputations and their pride in what they do in politics. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in order of um, the blame game, let's start with Mark Spencer, the chief whip, the the MPs that we've all spoken to are furious with him. They say it's a pattern of behaviour, failing to look round corners forcing them to defend policies, which the Prime Minister then drops a few days later. Let's think about Marcus Rashford campaign on free school meals. More recently, the environment bill debate about dumping raw sewage into rivers, which the government then had to retreat on, having sent ministers and MPs out to defend it for days. And then this one, you know, the failure to look around corners to think what happens next. So they're furious with Mark Spencer, that's for sure. I think they're also very, very angry with Owen Patterson, number of people we spoke to said, why didn't he just resign 24 hours earlier and spare all of us this nightmare? They're angry with him. But in the end, ultimately, this stops with Boris Johnson and they are furious with Boris Johnson. They think this is a classic example of the kind of thing Robert was saying, him sort of running roughshod over conventions, but also making up policy on the hoof, presenting it as a fessa accompli to the parliamentary party. So it has caused damage to that relationship. However, you know, the relationship between Boris Johnson and his party has always been very transactional. And the transaction is basically this, that Boris Johnson wins elections and helps to, helps them to win their seats. The moment that they make the calculation that's no, that no longer applies, they will turn on Boris Johnson with a vengeance. But I think it's fair to say we're quite a long way from that at this moment. Well, George, Laura and Robert, thank you very much.
Meanwhile, in Scotland, the COP26 climate summit has been underway this week. The world leaders met with some successes on deforestation and new goals for hitting net zero, but on coal, one of the most critical matters, no big breakthrough has emerged. Boris Johnson, the host of the summit, set out with the intention of keeping the dream of curtailing climate change to 1.5 degrees alive, with a stark warning to the delegates at the beginning of the summit on Monday. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. If we don't get serious about climate change today, it will be too late for our children to do so tomorrow. Well, Leslie Hook, it's wonderful to welcome you to Payne's Politics. Thanks for joining us from Glasgow. Let's begin with the overall backdrop. So Boris Johnson set out these big lofty goals for COP26 one week in. How's he getting on? Well, Boris Johnson is already headed back to London. Uh, and one week in, what we've seen is a lot of big deals be announced. Um, so week one has very much been about the showmanship, the theatre, um, these big headline grabbing numbers that they've managed to kind of pump up. Um, and week two is going to be much harder. That's about the negotiations. And the way the Paris Climate Accord works is it's a, a consensus-based system. So you have to have all 190 countries agree on the rules of the accord and how to implement it. So we're actually heading into a much harder phase of the COP now. Jim Picard, you've been in Glasgow and I think you're back in London going back next week because you just love the West Coast train line that much. Tell us a bit about the atmosphere of what it's like there, that uh, I've covered a couple of G7 summits and far too many party conferences. How would you describe it? There's been a lot of uh, tweets, shall we say, about the organisation of COP26. So it's absolutely fascinating. It's quite chaotic and it's quite bewildering. I mean, like you said, I, I did a G7 I think three or four years ago in Canada, and, and that that was relatively straightforward. The difference with COP is, I think it's something like 20,000 people who've descended on, onto Glasgow from all different corners of the world. And it's it's like it's sort of like being in an expo. There are loads of stalls, there are hundreds and hundreds of rooms and corridors, and you just have the sense of people rushing everywhere, and you know, African delegations, Asian delegations, European, all just sort of rushing past each other in different directions. One, one of my political friends I ran into up there said, he said, I didn't really know kind of wh where it all happens. Where does the action happen? And I said to one of our former negotiators that question, and he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said that there's not one room. There's there's literally scores and scores of rooms where all these negotiations are taking place. And then you have all the theatrics as well, the political theatrics and all the business announcements. And then the added layer of complication for the five of us who are there working as FT journalists is that they deliberately put a lot of their announcements out quite late in the day, which we're kind of used to in, in the political world as well, aren't we, Seb? But these announcements are massively complicated. Like, like I think two days ago, Leslie will probably confirm this, there were something like five or six different announcements about coal, each involving different numbers of countries on different elements. And we were expected to try and make sense and analyse this in quite short order. Now, Leslie, let's talk about some of those announcements then. Jim just mentioned coal there, and this is one of the fourth topics that Boris Johnson said in advance he wanted to get some progress on. What has and hasn't been achieved on that front? Going into the summit, coal was very much in the crosshairs. Uh, the UK COP president said they want to consign coal to history. You know, I think uh, Kwasi Kartang said uh, the end of coal is in sight. That's uh, perhaps a bit of an overstatement. There was a major pledge, kind of the UK's flagship pledge, in which 40 countries uh, say they will phase out coal. 
uh, domestically and internationally. Uh, but there was a bunch of wiggle room and the UK had to water down its pledge. Uh, so originally, developed countries were supposed to phase out coal by 2030. When the final language of the text emerged, it said in the 2030s with an S on the end, or as soon as possible thereafter. So it was very much wiggled down. And I think coal is a very, very contentious issue. It's obviously the biggest source of CO2 emissions in the world. So it's a very important issue. Um, But even the US didn't sign up to the UK's pledge. I think uh, the politics in Washington right now don't really give the Biden administration much room to say or do anything on coal. Obviously, they're being held hostage by Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, which is a coal-heavy state. So, uh, you know, coal is has really uh, highlighted some of the deep divisions that we see among the 190 countries that are party to the Paris Accord. There was a tweet by a journalist of the Washington Post who said one of the most influential people in COP26 is Senator Joe Manchin, who's not even here, but we won't go too far into US politics. On the cash front, Jim, things are looking a bit better for Boris Johnson, though, that he came into COP trying to get countries to agree, developed countries to agree to as big a sums as possible to put into the developing world. And so far, it looks as if that big target is going to be hit. Yes. So this this one gets quite complicated. But basically, back in 2009, the developed countries agreed at one of the cops then, I think it might have been Copenhagen. I think they decided that in the final hours when everyone was totally exhausted, it was sort of popped in the last minute. Developed countries would provide 100 billion of climate finance for the developing world. And the target was set for 2020. And they missed it. And that is quite an important thing because it allows the Chinese, for example, to say, well, you're not delivering either. So why will we step up our efforts? And someone told me secondhand, they heard that from one of the most senior Chinese negotiators this week, where we are at the moment is that we're on track to deliver that for 2023. For 2022, aka next year, we are on about 92 to $97 billion. The OECD gives an estimate, which is a range, depending on various factors. And since then, we've had the Japanese Prime Minister, uh, newly re-elected a couple of days ago, saying that his country is going to give another $10 billion over five years. So that on its own gets you basically to $99 billion. And I suspect this is something that might get a bit of political polish from Boris Johnson next week because he is desperate to find some kind of good news to brandish at the end of this two-week jamboree. One thing that has been highlighted, though, is the fact that two of the biggest polluters, uh, China and Russia, did not come to Glasgow for their own various reasons. And the US President Joe Biden actually criticised this in his remarks. I think it's been a big mistake, quite frankly, for China, at least back to China, not showing up. The rest of the world is going to look to China and say, what value added are they, are they providing? And they've lost an ability to influence people around the world and all the people here at COP. The same way I would argue with regard to Russia. Leslie, how much has that undermined these efforts, particularly on things like fossil fuels and coal? Because the fact is that getting a coal commitment from China was something that I think many developed countries saw would be crucial for trying to keep that 1.5 dream alive there. Has it overshadowed the conference at all, or have Dallas managed to sort of get on with it? Xi Jinping hasn't left China since before the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, expectations were always fairly low that he would, you know, break his uh, quarantine, as it were, for uh, the COP26. China's negotiators have very much been here. They've been very active. And China 
did recently publish its plan uh, for emissions, which is to reach carbon neutrality by 2060 and to start phasing out coal during the 2025 to uh, 2030 window to start reducing its coal use. So China does have those coal plants in place. Uh, however, they were, seemed a bit reluctant to sort of participate in the UK's uh, you know, homegrown coal deal, if that makes sense. And I think if there is one criticism of the UK as host, it's that week one has very much felt like the Boris Johnson show. But this is a UN process in which every country is supposed to have an equal voice. And the Paris Climate Accord is supposed to be the sort of this, the, the, the central focus. So all of these deals that we're talking about uh, on coal, for example, that's a that's a side deal that's supplemental, that, that's voluntary, that's been added on on top of the, the Paris Accord. So I think I think the Chinese haven't really wanted to, you know, participate as much in the in the UK led uh, showpieces. Well, let's look at that particular thing, Jim, because obviously this summit has been a big thing domestically for Boris Johnson, who, along with hosting the G7 in Cornwall early this year, was an example of Britain's convening power and what global Britain looks like post-Brexit, the idea of bringing countries together and trying to work through these knotty issues. Do you think Leslie's right, though, that there's maybe been too much focus on the UK Prime Minister and not enough on the very technical, nitty-gritty UN side of things, which is where real hard progress will be made this week and next week with diplomats, I say, over this weekend and next week. I suppose one thing we haven't explained yet is, is what these negotiations behind the closed doors are. So we, we had five years ago the Paris Agreement to limit temperature increases to two degrees or preferably 1.5 degrees, but no one actually sort of said how they were going to do it. And each country has since then, or most countries have set their own uh, sort of, you know, personalised plans for how they're, they're going to get there. But there are loads of things on sort of standardizing how you measure emissions and also negotiations about setting up a new global standardized carbon market. That's the stuff that's going on behind closed doors. And I think it's totally reasonable for Boris Johnson as prime minister and host to try while hosting this event to come up with some other more kind of eye-catching agreements. That's, That's totally within his remit. And he has this catchy slogan, which is fairly memorable, I think, cars, coal, cash, trees, We've talked about coal and cash. Um, we're going to get some kind of agreement on electric cars, I think, next week. On trees, we haven't talked about this, but we had an agreement at the start of the week where quite a large number of countries signed up to a deforestation announcement, which sounded great superficially. It didn't look so great when yesterday the Indonesian environment minister popped up on Twitter saying that this deal was totally unfair, uh, implying that her country which sadly has a lot of the remaining rainforest in the world, is not really going to take it very seriously. So, so Boris Johnson's got these four themes. I think that, that that's fine to be doing the side deals. I think where he's over-egging it is he keeps popping up and doing speeches where he's reaching ever more desperately for metaphors. And the metaphors are so exaggerated and also contradictory that they are almost meaningless. And the best example I can give of this is that on the plane out to Rome for the G. 20 at the weekend, he was claiming that mankind was 5-1 down against climate change. And literally two days later, he was claiming that mankind was now up at 5-2 or 5-3, which is such an extraordinarily ludicrous suggestion to make that somehow we, we've <laughs> nearly defeated this in two days. But other than that, I, I think the British government's doing okay on this. And I, I, 
I, I think that there are plenty of other world leaders who are getting a fair amount of attention from their own press. And we probably see more Boris Johnson because we read the British press. That's very true. Now, Leslie, let's look forward to what happens next, because as you said, all the leaders have gone. And will any of them come back? And what happens over the next couple of days, the conference and what kind of things can we expect to see in further announcements? This conference is about finalizing the rules of the Paris Climate Accord. So it's really a bunch of uh, nitty gritty. It gets very technical, very fast. But the outcome of the negotiations will determine whether there's a level playing field and a really robust um, monitoring mechanism and robust enforcement of the Paris Climate Accord. So one example of that is how do countries report their emissions and who verifies those reports? Is it just an honor system? Is there some sort of check? How do countries report their climate finance commitments? How do rich countries say how much they've given? Is that, again, an honor system or what's the process? So while it does get really technical, it will have a big impact on whether the Paris Agreement has sort of teeth or whether people can cheat and basically do what they want despite having signed up. So we'll see this process unfold over the next week. It's supposed to end on Friday, but these always go over time. I've booked my ticket back to London for Sunday because it could easily run through Sunday morning. This has happened in the past. We aren't expecting to see any leaders come back, but there will be a sort of minister level figures helping to get countries past their crunch points. And finally, Jim, obviously, measuring success for this for Johnson is a difficult one because the goal was set to keep the the dream of 1.5 alive, which obviously is not hard and not easy to measure as a tangible thing. Do you think he'll emerge from this conference boosted by it or at this stage? Or do you think, in fact, that it might just be a slight damn squib? The interesting question here really is you know, how much political capital he's willing to expend, because unlike other elements of domestic politics where you can get easy wins and short-term wins and medium-term wins. The thing about climate change is everything grinds forward in a very slow way. And it's not about saving the world today. It's about trying to limit the damage happening over the very long term and trying to wrest mankind back from a future disaster. So there aren't really the political wins that you get in the normal back and forth of, of parliamentary politics. And at the same time, he is facing a bit of a backlash from his own voters and from his own MPs. It's kind of muted at the moment because a lot of the measures required to reach net zero in the UK are not coming in yet. You know, you, you're not being forced to buy an electric heat pump. You're not being forced to drop your petrol and diesel cars yet. But it was very interesting watching MPs on Thursday in the House of Commons when Boris Johnson gave his address to Parliament on COP26 there were a lot of Tory MPs there talking about the, the competitive disadvantaging of the West and particularly Britain, particularly against China. And a lot of the people making those warnings were not kind of fringe characters. They were they were serious Tory heavyweights such as Liam Fox. So he, he's certainly taking a risk on doing this, which which may be commendable. Well, Jim and Leslie, thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of COP and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, be it Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you receive your podcast to get the episodes as soon as they're out. And if you're feeling cheerful this weekend, then add it with a nice cheerful review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Bean Turner and Sean McGarrity. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.